Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we are talking with Erica Titus Lay and Heather James. Dr. Titus Lay is an Assistant Professor of Clinical and Administrative Sciences at the California North State University College of Pharmacy. Heather James is a research nurse at Purdue University College of Pharmacy. Together with their colleagues that include Elena Tomaselli, Vinstrman, Carol Ott, Todd Walruff, Gabriella Williams, Paul Bowe, Michelle Wilbrandt, and James Tisdale, they published a research article in the June issue of Pharmacotherapy titled Accuracy of a Single Lead Mobile Smartphone Electrocardiogram for QT Interval Measurement in Patients Undergoing Maintenance Methadone Therapy. Erica and Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We want to talk about your specific research project But first, our listeners will already know that ECG monitoring is part of routine cardiovascular health assessment uh, for many people and populations throughout life. Some of our listeners may wonder why you chose to focus your research on the specific population of patients receiving methadone maintenance therapy. Yeah, so methadone is one of the drugs associated with the highest risk of QT interval prolongation and uh, the fatal arrhythmia torsades to point. Uh, However, there's currently not consensus among guidelines regarding the frequency of ECG monitoring uh, for the QT interval measurement uh, in this patient population. So we wanted to provide a a low uh, barrier option to increase the feasibility of ECG monitoring in this population uh, in view of the fact that traditional ECG monitoring is costly uh, and consumes resources that opioid treatment programs generally cannot provide. Let me follow up on something you just said. Since arrhythmias and especially torsade, the point you mentioned are potential outcomes associated with QTC interval prolongation. Would you give our listeners some context of if there are other commonly used drugs that have this uh, potential effect and if there are multiple other risk factors? Sure. Commonly used drugs, uh, in addition to the methadone that uh, have a high risk for the QT prolongation, include antimicrobials, uh, specifically those that are in the drug classes of the fluoroquinolones, the macrolides, and the azole antifungals. Antidepressants, specifically the citalopram and escitalopram, have the highest risk of QT prolongation. Antipsychotics, the more commonly used ones that we that we use now, uh, would include haloperidol and aripiprazole, as well as antiarrhythmics, including dofetilide, sotalol, ibutilide, amiodarone, and others from other drug classes, uh, including denepazil, celostazole, and cocaine. And then other risk factors that are not medication-related uh, include older age, female sex, Electrolyte abnormalities such as hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia, concomitant use of multiple QT prolonging uh, drugs, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, sepsis, and then acute uh, myocardial infarction. That's an impressive list of of drugs that are taken by uh, many people in uh, the population. You 
noted in your introduction in your article that uh, electrocardiographic monitoring is commonly recommended by a number of patient advocacy, advocacy groups to accompany uh, methadone treatment. I think you, you've alluded to this already, and it may seem obvious to our readers, but are there impediments or barriers to monitoring that could be overcome by the use of handheld smartphones? Sure. I would say the three components um, that we were trying to reduce barriers for would be, include time, cost, and then training required. So for, for the time component, uh, the handheld ECG device is much quicker than, than what it would take to set up the 12-lead ECG with attaching the electrodes and um, the patient having to take their clothes off, um, those types of things. Cost was the second one I mentioned. Uh, so costs would include the ECG single-use electrodes, the ECG paper, ECG machine, and then cost of any training of personnel or hiring an ECG technician. And then for the training required for accurate 12-lead ECGs, uh, that can take some, some significant time or, like I mentioned, may require the use of uh, an ECG technician. However, for the smartphone devices, uh, there's minimal training necessary, and it's pretty easy to even explain it to a patient to um, do on, the, on their own with, with watching them for the first couple of times. You mentioned in the introduction in your article that uh, one of the reasons for conducting this research is to determine if the accuracy of a handheld smartphone could be equivalent to a standard 12-lead uh, ECG. Would, would you just describe for the listeners your research approach to answer this question? Sure. So uh, we enrolled 115 patients, a convenient sample of those who were visiting the methadone clinic uh, and were receiving a steady state uh, dose of methadone, they were visiting the clinic to receive that dose. So typically in the morning to early afternoon, after we obtained a form, informed consent, patients were asked to lie in a supine position uh, as a standard for a 12-lead ECG, and we hooked them up to a 12-lead ECG machine. They also held the smartphone device, which is basically just a little electrode, um, maybe the size of a smartphone. Uh, it has Two, two electrodes actually on it. They're silver electrodes, and they could place two fingers on those at the same time. ECGs from both devices were obtained simultaneously. Then they were measured manually using electronic calipers. For the study, we assessed agreement between the devices, the smartphone and the 12-lead ECG, using by calculating bias using the Bland-Altman analysis of measurement agreement and assess the ability of the ECG device, the smartphone ECG device, to identify patients with QTC prolongation accurately as compared to the 12-lead ECG. So, and we also performed a standard sensitivity analysis comparing the two devices. What you've described uh, sounds like it would generate a lot of data, which I think is reflected in your results. Um, your data analysis included a lot of statistical outcomes and conclusions. So would you uh, summarize for the listeners just the most important of these results and, and outcomes? And also just you know, in practical terms, the utility of monitoring by a smartphone, uh, if this uh, can provide enough information for a clinician to make uh, decisions about uh, drug dosing, for example? Sure. So for this study, the majority of our sample was uh, female, 
uh, white or Caucasian, 75%, and and younger, 34, 34 years or uh, was the average age with few comorbidities besides use of other QT prolonging medications besides methadone. About 46% of the patients were either taking a QT prolonging medication or uh, using cocaine at, at the time. So a fairly otherwise healthy population uh, for this study. Agreement between the devices was considered uh, to be pretty good. Ninety uh, percent of the ninety percent of the readings showed agreement between both the smartphone and the twelve lead EKG. So uh, agreement was considered to be within twenty milliseconds of each other. Fifty-seven percent of those comparisons between devices were within ten milliseconds of each other. Then to uh, evaluate whether or not we were able to determine if the smartphone ECG device was a good predictor of QT prolongation, we used the 12-lead ECG as the gold standard and compared how many patients had QTC prolongation as defined as 470 milliseconds in men and 480 milliseconds in females, which is... Uh, the QT interval at or above the 99th percentile. And we found that we had pretty good agreement, although the biggest issue was our sensitivity was a little bit low. So that indicated that at 75%, uh, we'd probably want to follow up with an ECG if we had someone who was trending towards that 450 millisecond uh, QTC interval in a uh, in the smartphone ECG. You, you mentioned sensitivity, which is is related to one thought I had about uh, when I was reading your research, and that's just the the intra-subject variability of QTC uh, intervals. I, I'm just wondering if it's substantial, and you know, in, in other words, if a measurement at baseline and then at two weeks compared to baseline. Uh, exceeds 450 milliseconds, for example, how much of a change is really needed to uh, conclude that that patient has had a true change in cardiac conduction? Um, It is true that QT intervals vary throughout the day in individuals, and there's a good degree of intra-inter-individual variability. Typically, we look for changes of greater than 60 milliseconds over a period of time. Um, that would in, that would indicate that we're seeing some kind of a significant ECG change. But I, I think I would I think in practice I would recommend that anyone who had a QTC measurement of greater than 450 milliseconds with either the 12 lead or the smartphone ECG, I would want to confirm again with a, a repeat ECG. You mentioned a moment ago that females um, may be at higher risk for QTC interval prolongation uh, than males. Uh, did you find that your results are likely to be just as applicable to uh, males and females in methadone maintenance in the future? So we don't have reason to believe that our results would be different in uh, males versus females because we did use a different cutoff for that 99%. It's uh, the percentile for QTC intervals. So I think that because of those predefined QT prolongation cutoffs, 
Uh, I don't know that that would affect our results at this time. Although we did disproportionately sample uh, females, uh, that wasn't a planned analysis or planned uh, finding or expected in our results. So I would want to confirm the results of the study in a larger sample of males. Let me ask you about just some of the potential applications of smartphone ECG monitoring. The first, just you know, related to your current research population, if portable handheld smartphone measurement was more widely available, do you think this might allow more patients who could benefit from it to be treated with methadone maintenance? Yes, uh, definitely. Patients who may have risk factors for QT prolongation but may not necessarily have a baseline ECG indicating evidence of actual QT prolongation could potentially be initiated on methadone maintenance therapy and more safely monitored with more frequent ECG monitoring throughout their treatment uh, to identify if, if the addition of the methadone significantly impacts their QT interval. One thing, like Heather mentioned, is we did use the electronic calipers to measure QT pro, uh, the QT interval uh, with the smartphone handheld ECG uh, readings. I believe that's a little bit too complicated for patients to be able to do on their own, but definitely um, those that are trained within the clinics, uh, the methadone maintenance clinics, uh, could be trained uh, to use the device. It's definitely much quicker, like I mentioned previously, uh, compared to the 12-lead ECGs. Uh, so it could allow for more frequent monitoring. I suspect that you've thought of uh, a lot of other populations of, of patients that could benefit from uh, this technology that, that you explored. Uh, another that comes to my mind uh, are patients who uh, may be treated with uh, dofetilide or sodalol for atrial fibrillation, which I understand now, uh, often requires hospitalization for monitoring of initial tolerance and effects, which might not be necessary with this um, technology in the future, which would be a huge cost saving not to be um, hospitalized. Is this one of the potential populations that uh, could benefit from your technology? Previous studies actually did explore the utility of the smartphone ECG monitoring, uh, including um, patients that were on those medications specifically. Uh, I can quickly summarize a couple of those. Uh, one was a small pilot study, included, which included five consecutive patients with a history of atrial fibrillation um, who had taken at least one dose of dofetilide before undergoing the smartphone ECG that was compared to a 12-lead ECG completed at the same time. The authors of that study did report that QTC intervals measured by the two methods were similar and all were within 10 milliseconds. Another uh, group of investigators assessed the reliability of the smartphone ECG in 20 adult patients hospitalized for dofetilide or sotalol loading, uh, in which the smartphone ECG and the 12-lead ECG were obtained prior to and two hours after each medication dose. Uh, the smartphone ECG was associated with a bias of 3 milliseconds and a standard deviation of bias of 46 milliseconds, with the authors considered reasonable agreement. I do want to point out with these studies um, that all QT intervals were measured while the patients were in sinus rhythm. QT intervals are typically more difficult to accurately measure while patients are in atrial fibrillation. So the accuracy of the mobile smartphone ECG for measuring the QT interval, intervals during atrial fibrillation does require uh, some, some investigation. 
Um, and then most importantly, the use of the smartphone ECG should not replace traditional ECG monitoring during inpatient hospitalization for dofetilide and sotalol initiation because the FDA does mandate that there's continuous tele uh, telemetry monitoring uh, and patients do need to be in a setting where emergency cardiac care could be provided if the patient were to develop torsades. So the inpatient hospitalization period um, is mandated because patients could have torsades and need to be emergently treated. So the smartphone ECG could likely be used for outpatient QT uh, interval monitoring for patients taking the dofetilide or sotalol while they're in sinus rhythm after the initial inpatient initiation period. But for now, at least, when, they're, when they are in atrial fibrillation, this method of QT monitoring could not be used to replace the inpatient hospitalization monitoring during the, the, those first three days of initiation of the dofetilide or sotalol. Well, I think that's useful information for our listeners. Your article and your, your, your research emphasizes the potential value of um, avoiding or detecting um, emerging torsade point uh, arrhythmias as a, as a high uh, risk factor for morbidity. But you also state in the discussion that there have been no cases that have occurred with smartphone monitoring, or perhaps I'm wondering if not enough patients have been monitored, or, or is it just none have occurred yet? One thing I do want to point out with the, the smartphone ECG devices, uh, they are not currently programmed to detect torsades. That's likely the reason why none have been reported. Uh, currently, just as a quick summary, the Apple Watch ECG applications can detect normal sinus rhythm, atrial fibrillation, low or high heart rate, um, or it will produce an inconclusive result if the recording does show signs of another arrhythmia or a heart condition that the app is not designed to recognize. For the Cardia smartphone devices, which is what we used for our study, they're able to detect atrial fibrillation, the bradycardia, tachycardia, sinus rhythm with um, SVE, sinus rhythm with wide QRS, and sinus rhythm with PVCs, but they are also not currently programmed to detect torsades. Uh, I, I believe we are headed in the right direction where insurance companies will likely pay for smartphone ECG monitoring, at least for atrial fibrillation um, initially and until the other devices are programmed to detect other uh, arrhythmias. Currently, Aetna and United Healthcare have teamed up with Apple to provide health, uh, health services through the use of the Apple Watch. And they do provide reimbursement up to 100% of the cost of the watch based on the achievement of certain activity milestones such as uh, daily walking goals um, and other, other health goals. Uh, so currently it's unclear when this might occur for QT monitoring and torsades specifically, um, but I do think we are headed in the right direction. Well, your comments today and certainly the discussion in your research article indicate that this is a technology that could have real value in, in, in healthcare and that uh, insurance providers uh, may embrace it. Um, our listeners can find more information about uh, your research in the article that was published in the June issue of uh, Pharmacotherapy. I want to thank uh, both of you, Dr. Uh, Tina Slay and Ms. Janes, for participating in the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you.